0: so today we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to be reading through verse 22. So I'll give you a second to get there, and we'll, uh, we'll have the words up on the screen as well. Second Samuel 12. All right, so 2 Samuel 12 says, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would, she would eat, from his cup she would drink, in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, You are this man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. Now therefore, the sword will never leave your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife." This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became deathly ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died, but David's servants were afraid to tell him the baby was dead. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him, and he wouldn't listen to us. So how can we tell him that the baby is dead? He may do something desperate. When David saw that his servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, is the baby dead? He is dead, they replied. Then David got up from the ground, he washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house, and worshipped. Then he went home and requested something to eat, so they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me.
1: Well, as we continue in this series on the life of David, we have gotten to what is uh, certainly going to be a turning point, you'll see, in the narrative on David's life, uh, where things get a little bit rougher from here on out. And as we read over the next uh, several weeks and chapters in 2 Samuel here, the consequences and the fallout from David's sin. But it is not all bad news because in this passage we do see David return to the Lord. He returns to the Lord, why? Because first, the Lord went to him. Back in 1890, there was an English uh, poet named Francis Thompson. And he wrote this poem called The Hound of Heaven. And in, he, in that poem, he uh, just as it is titled, he described God as the hound of heaven with the idea that the Lord uh, pursues us and he seeks us out and he chases after us as a hound would chase after a prey. But the Lord chases after us like a hound, not, in, um, not as a predator going after prey, but he chases us in love. Francis Thompson wrote about how he would try to run away and, uh, and, and uh, seek satisfaction in and pleasures and in sin, but they would never do, and the hound would be after him still. And so he would try to hide in different places and at different times, but the hound could always find him still in all these different ways throughout his whole life, and yet he could never escape from the pursuing love of the hound of heaven. And that's what we see at work here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The hound pursuing David while he is in his sin so that he might uh, confront him in the complacency of his sin and return him home. That's what we're going to learn about today as we look at this restoration chapter, the second part of the story in David's great fall with his sin by taking Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. We're going to look at it by examining three characters in the story. Um, first, we're going to look at Nathan, the prophet who came to him, and then we're going to look at David, and then lastly we're going to look at Solomon. We didn't read that that section, but uh, but Solomon does come later in this chapter. So we're going to look at Nathan the prophet, David, and then lastly Solomon. So beginning by looking at Nathan. we saw in the previous chapter, David was in control of the entire narrative from the beginning. Whenever he sees Bathsheba, he sends his servants for her. He sends for her, and she she comes back home, or she comes to him. They sleep together, and then she goes back home. Whenever she finds out that she's pregnant, and she and David finds out, he sends for Uriah. Then he sends Uriah home. Then he or tries to send him home. Then he sends him back to the battlefield. He sends for Joab. We see throughout the whole narrative, David is in control of the whole thing. He is making sure that his desires are fulfilled and that uh, this sequence of events goes as he wants them to go. As we looked at last week, and just as as a refresher, and if you weren't here last week, we saw that at the core of David's sin, yes, it's gross and it's dramatic in the story, but if we boil it down, at the core of David's sin, he made himself the center of the kingdom. He usurped God's throne, the throne that he was merely a steward of, but truly belonged to the Lord. He acted as if it were his own. The kingdom were his own, and therefore any of the women of the kingdom, even if she belonged to another man, was his own to take. So he acts as though he is the ultimate king rather than God. It is his kingdom, and so he, because it is his kingdom, puts his desires at the center of it. And make sure that in his kingdom, where his desires are at the center, what he wants is done. This is one of the great themes that we that we see. If, and you can go back and read it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David remaining in control, sending his servants to accomplish his will. But as the narrative continues, we see a turning. We, we see a change, a shift happening in terms of who is in control of this story. At the very beginning of chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, So... There's your turning. The Lord sent Nathan. There's your signal word, your key word for what is happening and changing in this narrative. David, who was in control before, sending whoever he wanted to, to accomplish his will. Now God is once again in control of the story as he sends Nathan to accomplish his will. Because after all, it is still his throne, his kingdom, and where his desires are at the center of the kingdom. And so he sends Nathan indicating that God is back in charge. Now, Nathan comes to David, and we, we read the story. He comes to him, and he tells him there was two men in a certain city. You know, it's very vague, and it, and it seems as though Nathan didn't come to him and tell him, hey, here's something I heard about. But he also didn't say, hey, uh, David, here's a parable I want to tell you. It, he's, he intentionally kept it very vague because by David's reaction, it seems as though David thought that this parable, which is what it was, this parable that Nathan told him was something that had actually occurred, because Nathan had the details in his presentation of it just vague enough to let to, to, to sort of lead David along in thinking that that was the case, and so David responds with uh, with with a burning for justice, right? He sees the great. Injustice and the sin that happened with the story of the rich man and the poor man and the rich man taking the one lamb from the poor man. And so he, he responds in rage. He responds in condemnation. You know, he he's the king, and he is responsible for executing the laws of the land. He is responsible for upholding justice in the land. And so he stands, he is ready to execute justice. And then Nathan responds to him, you are the man. One of the commentators on this story wrote that because of, uh, because of Nathan's clever way of approaching David and convicting him, he had the sword at David's throat before David even knew it. It's interesting, the way that Nathan comes to him, and in acting as God's messenger to David, what we can learn about the way that God approaches us in our sin notice david like i said before has committed gross sin here it 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 is it's bad right adultery murder god's chosen king right has fallen and he has fallen quite far god could have sent nathan and nathan come to him with you know like like imagine moses whenever he was you know at the height of his power leading the people out of israel uh, out of egypt he could have come with his staff pronouncing condemnation and judgment upon him, saying, you know, you you are about to receive your due for trampling upon God's commands as you have and for despising God's holiness and for forgetting his grace towards you. He could have come at him in that way, but instead he doesn't. His approach is far more gentle. Now his word for him, after David realizes that he's speaking about him, is certainly hard, right? But it's not how he comes to him. So he comes at him gently, and then he comes to him and he convicts him in a sin, and he does it in such a way that it brings David to uh, something of an acknowledgement of his own sin. Right. So he doesn't just come to him and 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 tell him, "Here's what you did. Here's why it's wrong. You know, here's what you've done against the Lord." But he, in a sense, like through this gentle luring with the story brings David to the place to where David recognizes for himself, and and he comes to see that he is in the wrong, that he has sinned. It teaches us about the way that God approaches us and how often we are in sin, how often we trample upon his commands. We forget about his grace and how he approaches us gently. Even whenever we have fallen from him, I know, can anyone else in here say, you know, I know that I've I've fallen from him more far more times than I'm willing to admit, and fallen into the same patterns of sin far more time than I'm willing to admit. And yet the Lord comes to me, and he doesn't come in in heavy judgment, but he comes to me gently. It teaches about the way that God approaches us whenever we are in our sin. Remember in John chapter 4, whenever Jesus approaches and talks with the woman at the well the woman who turns out was 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 promiscuous was uh was you know a woman of uh, ill repute as they said back in the day and the way that he is gentle with her he doesn't just say ah I can't stand being in your presence. Get away from me. You know, he doesn't say, I don't want to talk to you. He doesn't say, go clean yourself up, change your life, then come back and I'll talk to you. Instead, he gently engages her in conversation and without her even realizing it, brings her to the place in the conversation to where he can unveil her sin and invite her into repentance and in relationship with him. This is the way that God approaches us as sinners. Even whenever the stories are a little bit more dramatic, like Saul on the road to Damascus, and Christ appears before him in his glorified form, knocking Saul down from his horse, even then, that, for all the drama of it, was much, 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 much more gentle than what Saul deserved. He could have crushed Saul in that moment, taken his life The Lord approaches us in gentleness, and he often convicts us in our sin in a manner which is not just, um, which is just pressing it down upon us, shoving it down our throats, but instead in his grace leading us to where we need to be in our mind, and our hearts, to see and recognize that we have sinned against the Lord. But why did God send Nathan to begin with? Why does he send Nathan? Two reasons. The first is this, David for, uh, based on all appearances from reading these two chapters, is absolutely complacent, he's, he's comfortable, he's content, almost ignorant, ignorant we might say, in his sin. It's almost as though he's oblivious to what he has done. He feels no sting of conviction. He had, as far as we can tell from the story, maybe there was some sting, but, but the, the narrator gives us no indication of that. Notice in chapter 11 was the affair. In chapter 12, there's a son. Now, if you, if you have kids or if you remember biology class, <laughs> right, there is a nine-month period between, uh, between a, the affair, in this case, and birth of a child. So all this time has gone by, and David has remained comfortable and content in what he has done. All this time has gone by. So God has to send Nathan to David because, number one, his his servant, the man after his own heart, his anointed king is comfortable and content to remain in his sin. In Galatians, Paul wrote to the church, and he talks about the the sin that they had fallen into, which in in their case was legalism, as though it was like a spell put upon them. He said, who has bewitched you? Right? It's, it's, like, it's like they had become blinded through a spell in their sin. And you almost get that sense with David. He should have known better. He shouldn't be this comfortable. But sin, in, its, the, in the depravity of what sin is, and in its power, in the danger of it, even in the life of a believer, it seems as though it almost had him under a spell. His eyes were blinded. He he seems ignorant to even what he has done. So God has to send Nathan because of David's contentment and ignorance in his sin. Secondly, why does God have to send Nathan? Because God is faithful to his covenant with David. He is faithful to his covenant with David. The Lord had made a promise. That's what his covenant is. He had made a promise, a binding agreement with David that he would be his king, that David would be the king over his nation, and God would be his God, that he would be the recipient. He he, uh, he, He would get to experience the covenantal love of the Lord for all the days of his life, and the Lord even promised that his covenantal love And that this binding agreement with with David would never even leave the house of David. But look at what happened. Someone broke the covenant. It wasn't God. It was David. David broke that covenant with the Lord. He broke his end of the agreement to be a, like I said before, steward of the throne. To be an anointed king who was not the ultimate sovereign, but who served under the authority of God. David dropped his end of the bargain, his end of the deal. He broke his side of the covenant. He deserved curse. He deserved death, which is almost probably what he was expecting, which is why Nathan had to tell him, you will not die. You know, your sins are forgiven. But that's what he deserved, what should have happened for breaking the covenant with the Lord. But the Lord had promised God had made a promise to him to be faithful to him and to, be, and to love him, to bless him, to him and his house forever. So what is the Lord to do now? To give David the curse and the death that he deserved since he broke the covenant? Or for the Lord to remain true to his promise despite David's unfaithfulness? What does God do? He holds up his side of the covenant even still. Even still, he is faithful to the promise that he made. And in fact, his faithfulness to the covenant and his uh, binding love to David is so powerful that it is even able to bring the breaker of the covenant back into that place of faithful, binding love. Why does God send Nathan Because he is upholding the covenant that David has broken. This is why the hound of heaven pursues him. And so our first point is this. God's love pursues us even in our sin. God's love pursues us even in our sin. One of my all-time favorite verses in Scripture, and one that has always spoken to me so deeply, is in Romans chapter 5, whenever Paul wrote, For even while we were sinners... God, in a different translations say different things, it, uh, it, it might say God proved or God commended or God demonstrated his love towards us and that Christ died for us. And the phrase that I love in there is that even while we were sinners, even while we were sinners, he died for us. He proved his love towards covenant breakers, towards sinners, towards those who don't deserve it. Look at David. You can, you can see David in, in Romans chapter 5. Paul went on, by the way, to say, For who would die for, if anyone would die for a good man or a righteous man, but who would die for the wicked? Christ did. Who would desire to remain in covenant with an adulterer and murderer and a covenant breaker? Yahweh, the Lord. His faithful love, his love pursues us even while we are in our sin. It is a theme that we can see all throughout Scripture. We can see it in Abraham, whenever he has his great moral failures at different points in his life. And God's covenantal love pursues him still and remains faithful to the promise that he had made to Abraham even still. We see it when Moses would, uh, would, was unfaithful as a leader. God's love pursues him still. We see it in Jonah, maybe one of the most famous stories of God's pursuing love. Whenever he was running away from his calling to be a prophet to Nineveh, and he is cast into the sea but rescued by being swallowed into the belly of a fish. Probably not the type of rescue that Jonah would have wanted, by the way, right? But that's the rescue that God sends. And there in the heart of the sea, right in in the belly of the whale, Jonah realizes that God's love has met him there. If in the heart of the sea and the belly of a well is not far enough away from God's pursuing love to reach you, do you think that there is anywhere you could run that you would escape or outrun or be too far away from God's pursuing love towards you? Like Francis Thompson wrote, there is nowhere we can run and hide or anything we can do to escape the hound of heaven. We see it with Peter, who denied Jesus three times in the night of his arrest and crucifixion. And then at the end, in one of the sweetest stories, at the end of the, uh, of the book of John, Jesus gives Peter three chances to confess his love for him, thereby restoring him from his fall. We see it with Saul whenever he was on the road to Damascus, breathing threats and murder, it said, against the disciples of Jesus Christ. And the Lord's pursuing love stops him in his tracks. And how many times in our life have we been complacent, and we are content, we're comfortable, we're bewitched by our sin, and God's love comes and stops you in your tracks. Even whenever you try to run away, he pursues you still. His love chases after us even when we run from him. Like a child who runs away from their parent in disobedience, but the parent runs after them still to rescue them from their own foolishness, to rescue them from the danger they might get themselves in, to grab them and pull them back. God chases after us. When we become blinded, spelled, and ignorant, he awakes us. And the question is, why? Why would he do such a thing? How could he do such a thing? Scripture gives us one answer love. Every time we ask why, it's the only answer it gives us. Why again? How could he forgive me again? I don't understand it. Love. He loves you that much. His love is that unbreakable, it is that undefeatable, it is that infinite. And strong. Why every time and time and again, love? What does this mean for us? It means embrace God's pursuing love. Embrace His pursuing love for you. If in this moment, if this morning, you you feel the hound of heaven coming after you you feel God's pursuing love pressing upon your heart you are he is making you aware of he is awakening you to the complacency that you have been in your sin do not resist it in your pride do not hold back don't say oh no it couldn't be I've been too bad I've been too wrong I've been too far gone I've been resisting too much to this point surely it couldn't be friends that's pride in your heart That's pride holding yourself back from his love for you. Embrace it. Do not resist. Receive his pursuing love towards you, for there is nothing that makes the heart of God more glad than to rescue a lost sheep, right? He rejoices whenever the prodigals come home. So don't resist his love. Don't say, no, it couldn't be. Don't, don't say, how could he or why me embrace it? Let's look at David. What had David done? When we look at Nathan's hard word towards him, we, we see, we, we first of all see that he had forgotten God's grace towards him. This is what Nathan begins with. He says, you've forgotten all that I have done for you. You've forgotten that I took, he was a shepherd, he was a nobody. And he says, I chose you, I anointed you. Remember all the stories that we've looked at over the, the course of this long series of how God has been gracious and faithful and there for David time and again, and how he has blessed him. And he says in that, he says, I've given you the kingdom, I've given you wives, I've given you power. He says, look at all that I've given you. How could you have forgotten this? David had forgotten his grace towards him. Let me take a little step aside, make a quick application from that. What this ought to teach us is that whenever we are in the midst of temptation to sin, whatever kind of sin it might be, whenever you're in the midst of temptation, one thing you ought to turn to in order to fight that temptation is the history of God's grace towards you. Okay? So gratitude. Whenever you're tempted to indulge in something to satisfy your heart, instead use gratitude, looking at what God has done for you to fight that sin. Okay, So David had forgotten God's grace towards, towards uh, himself. He had despised God's command. This is what Nathan said to him. He says, you have despised the Lord's command. He has trampled upon God's word and grace, and thereby trampling upon the commander of the word himself. Consider that you, um, you, have, you, you, you create a work of art. Right? You do something that you're really proud of. Maybe, maybe it's actual, an actual painting. You take a painting and you're, you're really proud of it, or maybe it's a piece of music that you write and, you're, and you want to show it to someone or, or whatever else it might be, something that you make, a story that you write, and you bring it to your spouse or you bring it to a close friend, excited to show it to them, and they take that story you wrote and they just tear it. Or they take that painting and they just paint over it, or they take it off the wall, put it in the trash, Would you take that a little personal? All right? You would. It would be natural because you would take that as, okay, I think it's a little bit more than you just didn't like, you know, my stick figure. That's what I would do that I drew. I feel you have an issue with me. Whenever we trample upon God's law and God's command, his word towards us, we need to understand it is not just despising his command, but the commander too. It is, a, it is not just breaking a, a cold law, but it is breaking the heart of God. So, this is what David had done. What is David's response? It's brief and simple. In verse 13, it says David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's his, that's his whole confession. I have sinned against the Lord. In light of all that he had done, and and the drama and all the detail of these passages, it's a little shocking at first to us. That's all he says. It's brief, but it is sufficient. Because Nathan responds, your sins are forgiven, you will not die. It's brief, but it is sufficient. There's no excuse making. There's no cloaking what he had done. There's no religiosity in it. It's straightforward, it is an open confession, and it is sufficient for the Lord. David's response teaches us about repentance. Oh, I skipped my main point. Second main point. God's love is intended to lead us to repentance. All right, now what does David's response teach us about repentance? All right, put it up. Okay. Um, This is a good reason, or a good place to remind you that you can download my notes every week for whenever I do things like this, okay? (laughs) Okay. So if you're furiously trying to write and now I've confused you, just remember you can download my notes and uh, every week. So, um, all right, so repentance. David teaches us, his response teaches us about repentance. The first thing is this. His response teaches us that repentance is an acknowledgment of our guilt before God. Repentance is first an acknowledgment of our guilt before God. We cannot, I think sometimes we are tempted to, Whenever we are trying to repent and come back to God, skip that step of confession. Skip that step of an acknowledgment to God of what we have done. And this is an important step, an important part in the process of repentance. Because what we are doing, whenever we are confessing our sin to him, we are laying before him what we are expecting him to forgive. So if you hold that back, if you have sinned in a way that it's, it, oh, it hurts for you to even say it to the Lord, if you hold that back from him, then friends, I'm not saying that it can thwart God's forgiveness, okay? But I'm but what I am saying is it might thwart your experience of forgiveness. You, you gotta confess it. You have to lay it before him, lay it before the cross so that you know whenever you, you confess it and you repent and you receive his grace, you know it is in your heart. You've experienced it, you know it's gone. This is what David does he acknowledges his sin. In Psalm chapter 51, which is the famous psalm that that David wrote after this episode, he's much more thorough in this psalm. Let me read to you what he said, how thorough his acknowledgement of his sin is. He says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my sin and cleanse me from my guilt. For I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence and you are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Repentance is, first of all, an acknowledgement and a confession of our guilt before God. Secondly, repentance is turning away from our sin and turning back to God. Whenever you hear repentance, and I know we, we throw around this word in church a lot, and maybe you grew up in church and you heard the word a lot, I feel like we don't often just lay out plainly what it means. What it means is, is I always like to think of it in terms of, um, in a very physical way. Repentance literally means to turn away from the path that you have been following and turn to the Lord. You have been walking down this road, which is the road of of self, of sin, of law-breaking, of idolatry, right? Of living for your own kingdom, whatever else we might call it. You have been walking down this road. Repentance means making a complete 180-degree turn to following the Lord. Another way that we might put it is this. Repentance means forsaking that which you have been living for, which you have been working in, which you have been centering your life upon, and embracing the Lord's. Forsaking and embracing God. Turning away and following after. This is what repentance means. And it's what David does. He turns away from his sin and back to God. Once again, we can see this if we look to Psalm 51. In verse 10, he says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is his desire. A clean heart, right? To... To have a clean heart to forsake the sin. To have a right spirit within to follow after the Lord. Repentance is an acknowledgment and confession of our guilt. And then it is a turning away and a forsaking of our sins to embrace and follow after God. What this means for us is this. It means simply return to God when his love captures you in your sin. Return to him. Don't be afraid of confession. Remember that you are pursued by the hound of heaven who is a hound of love and of grace. Remember that there is nothing that can break his love for you. And that, especially if you are a believer, that we are forever and always wrapped up and surrounded in and breathing in God's steadfast love for us. Don't be afraid of confession. Lay it out before the Lord. Place it down at the foot of the cross and then leave it there. If you do so, it is no longer yours to carry. It is no longer yours to bear. It is, it, the, the sin that once blotted your heart has been washed away. It has been made clean. So lay down all those things before God and then forsake them there. They no longer define you. They no longer have to weigh you down, you can now walk in the freedom of forgiveness. Let's continue on. For the reading, we just looked at kind of the first two-thirds of the story. If you continue, and you can go back and read chapter 12 and it's in full later, but if you read after this, um, after the section that Lagan had read this morning, David after this goes on and he returns to the battlefield where they were still the war against the Ammonites was still going on. He returns to the battlefield and he completes the victory. Whenever I was reading this week, I didn't, I didn't find that a lot of commentators really appreciated what I found to be the significance of that. The king, one of the king's primary roles, is to secure victories and security for the kingdom. Right, this is what the king does. He squashes enemies. At the beginning of chapter 11, one of the first little signs we can see of David's descent into sin is that he is not on the battlefield fighting the Lord's battles, winning the Lord's victories, but instead he's at home. But after he is convicted in his sin and he spends time in mourning for his son, he goes back to the battlefield and he wins a victory. He ends the war with the Ammonites. I think even in that, we see a restoration of David. He is returned to acting like the king that he is supposed to be, who wins his victories for the Lord. But then after that, it tells us another little piece of the story. It says that Bathsheba became pregnant again and that she bore a son and his name was Solomon. You guys might remember the name of Solomon. He's a pretty important figure in the Old Testament. There's gonna be a a time where uh, there is there is much conflict and turmoil going on in Israel and in the house of David. We're going to be looking at that in the next couple of weeks. But after this time, and, he, and then after David's death, finally the throne of Solomon will be established. Solomon is the one who is, in the, the the eyes of the Lord, the successor to David's throne, the one who's going to be the next great king after David. And we know that Solomon is the wisest king to ever rule over Israel. He's the one who wrote Song of Solomon. He's the one who wrote the majority of the Proverbs. So out of this situation, out of all the sin that we read in this passage, and the judgment, and the heartbreak, despite all this, we see that God still sends another son. But before that, whenever the first son who who dies, and God had spoken his word of judgment, David weeps and he mourns. It says that he fasts and he prays. He's pleading with the Lord. Despite God's word of judgment, saying that this is what I'm going to do, David still goes before him and he pleads, pleads for mercy. And I think there's something important to learn in this. Because not only do we see David as a recipient of God's grace, but we see David as someone who has a sense of God's grace. We can see the sense that he had. If you go back and you look at verse 22, after the the son had passed away and the servants talked to him, and they're like, they can't understand his behavior. Because after the boy passes away, then he gets up, he goes and he worships God, he eats, they're, they're confounded by the way he's acting. And they say, why are you acting this way? And in his, in his explanation, he said, who knows? He said, who knows? The Lord might have shown mercy. Even despite God's word of condemnation, uh, of consequence, judgment, because of the sense that David had of how great and of how big, and of how unbreakable God's grace is, it led him to even still say, who knows? Who knows? It gave him a hope, even in the midst of him experiencing discipline for his sin. And I think that that, for us, can give us great hope as well. The commentator Dale Ralph Davis says, doesn't this text then give hope to any fallen believer? Your You're conscious of your Failures, repentant of your sins, yet have no ground in yourself to expect mercy, no reason to expect favor. You wonder if for the rest of your days you are doomed to exist within the confines of God's frown. But if you have more than a doctrine of grace, if you have a sense of grace, if you think of Yahweh as David did, you will walk on in the light of hope. This passage does not mean to help you excuse the guilt of your sin, but to help you get beyond the despair of your sin. David says, who knows? He has hope. The son still does die, but then God brings restoration in Solomon. He gives him another, Solomon, the future wise king. And I'd love... That even in the spite of the, the, the gross sin, the drama of this story, the heartbreak of this story, that God's grace shines through in the end. And that this failure of David's did not have to determine his entire story, and it did not have to determine his future. And so the last point that I want us to see, God's love is greater than our sin and promises us a brighter future. God's love is brighter, is greater than our sin, and it promises us a brighter future. The audacity of God's love ought to shake us in this passage. It'd be easy for us to, out of a sense of justice, to, to want to see David crushed because of his sin. As we said, he was, he was an adulterer and a murderer. And, and after his brief confession, that's all it took, for God to say through Nathan, your sins are forgiven. The audacity of God's grace to be able to forgive such sin ought to shake us. How is it possible that God could show such great mercy to his greatly fallen servant? Here's how. It was a tragedy that David lost his son in this passage. But many, many years later, there would be a son of David who would come, and his life would be lost. His life would be laid down for our sin. That was Jesus, the son of David, who came and lived the perfect life and died the death that we should have died so that in spite of all of our sin, so in spite of all of our fallenness, and all the times that we have wandered away from God, and all the times that we have forgotten his grace, Whenever we go before him, we acknowledge our sin and forsake it. He can say to us, once again, your sins are forgiven. You will not die. Because of the son of David who died for us, we can know and we can place our hope in that our failures and that the sins that we carried, the sins that we indulged in, do not have to define us anymore. And they do not have to determine our future Because now our future is determined by God's grace. We can say to ourselves, even whenever we go through disciplining for our sin, we experience the consequences of the choices we have made, though they might be long-lasting, we can still throw ourselves upon God's mercy saying, Who knows? Who knows? It gives us that hope. It gives us that that sun up on the horizon saying there can be a better future. There can be a better path. My story doesn't have to look like it always has or it did in the past or like it does today. It can be different because the God who writes my story is a God of unbreakable love and grace. And his mercy is greater than my sin and my sins are washed away in the blood of the Son of David, Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Because how often do we stay hung up on our past sins? You know, it might be something that is well within your past, but you still carry on a little bit of baggage. You still carry on a little bit of grief, a little bit of false guilt. And it holds you back from times of obedience that God calls you to, or stepping up in diff- into different callings that God places on your life because you're still carrying that little bit of disobedience, you're still carrying that little bit of guilt, and you're saying, oh, surely this calling couldn't be for me. You know, it holds you back from taking ri- uh, uh, holy risks for the Lord. You know this story che- teaches us? That that sin doesn't determine your future. God's grace does sometimes it might have been the sin of someone else on you you're the victim of someone else's sin you're the victus, uh, uh, victim of of malice and so often people get stuck in that sin against them and think that the pain and the trauma sometimes then even the guilt that victim's guilt that can come in, will start to define who they are and what their future will always be. And I will always be this broken person. And I will always carry these weights and this baggage. And you know what this story tells you as well? That that sin of someone else towards you does not have to determine your future either. God's grace determines your future. And so even on the hard days, You can look and see the sun rising on the horizon and say, who knows, and throw yourself upon God's mercy. What I want to, I want to leave you with this, our last application, believe in God's grace to change your life. Believe in God's grace to change your life. Friends, I'm talking about something greater than a, um, than an easy conscience. We need that. So a lot of you guys, you have an easy, you have a weak conscience, you know, a a sensitive heart. And so you carry around a lot of shame that you shouldn't and you carry around false guilt that you shouldn't. And we so we need freedom in our conscience. Yes, absolutely. But I'm talking about something even greater than that. I am talking about grace that changes your life, that makes a difference in your life whenever you get that freedom in your conscience and that lifting of the burden of your guilt and shame that then brings transformation in your life and in the world around you, right? You start accepting those, those callings that you know God is placing on you because you're no longer held down by that baggage. You start taking those holy risks. You start, you start being becoming more the leader, maybe, that God is calling you to be because you're no longer being held down. Maybe you start to dare to love in a way that you've been holding yourself back because of past hurts. You dare to love. You dare maybe sometimes to even suffer, knowing that even in our sufferings, we are secure in God's love. I am talking about a grace that can actually change your life, guys, that can bring about healing, that can bring about restoration, that can bring about victories, that can bring about works of God that you can't even dream of. This is what I want for us. So turn back to the hound of heaven. Turn back to the hound who chases after you, even you and your sin, Christian, who desires to write you a new story. As Francis Thompson wrote in his poem, Whenever the hound spoke to him, whenever God was speaking to him, he said, And human love needs me- human meriting. How hast thou merited? Of all man's clotted clay, the dingiest clot. Alack thou knowest not, how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me, only me? All of which from thee I did but take. Not for thy, thy harms, but just that thou mightst seek it in my arms. Leap into the arms of our gracious God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I praise you, though it is often something that we even struggle to wrap our minds around, that you confront us in our sin in a manner which is so much more gentle than what we deserve. And that your faithful love pursues us even whenever we have lost all merit for any love. Like like Francis Thompson wrote, whenever we find ourselves in the dingiest clot that there's ever been, in, in a state where we might ask ourselves, who could love us? And we remember, save you, only you. I thank you that you don't leave us in our sin. You don't let us remain in our complacency and in our um, spellbound state, blind to where we are, but that you pursue us and you chase after us like the shepherd pursuing the sheep, like the father running after his prodigal son. I thank you, Lord. And I ask that for those in here this morning who feel the breath of the hound running who feel the the weight of that penetrating grace pressing onto their heart that we might open up that we might turn that we might let down our resistance and experience that washing flood of steadfast love and of grace and of mercy that comes through our life that 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 the like a flood washes through the the dirty and cobwebbed portions of our heart and makes them clean. That frees us from the burden of the baggage and the guilt and the shame that we carry and brings us into a new and brighter future. So even when we despair and even when we question and even when we say how can it ever be any different from this that we know the sun is on the horizon and so we continue to pray we fast and we lay ourselves down before you because we say who knows but Lord we know that you know so that's why we lay ourselves down Lord I pray all these things and I ask that you would help us to embrace your grace turn away from our sin and then walk in that life changing grace we pray in the name of the Son of David, who laid down his life for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.